Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Michael Hill-Smith is a sixth-generation winemaker that always wanted to do his own thing, rather than going to the family firm, Yolumba. Show judge, entrepreneur, consultant and lapsed restaurateur, he's one of Australia's finest palates and advocates. Listen to us chat about his various projects in the Adelaide Hills, Tasmania and Blewett Springs, the debt that he owes to the legendary Len Evans and what makes a good airline wine. Hi, Michael. How are you? Tim. It's absolutely lovely to hear your voice. And I think you're back in Australia, aren't you? I did see you in London recently for a wonderful tasting of all those superb Tollpuddle wines. Yes, um, I was in London in May and then um, raced back, but uh, a, bit, a bit like everyone in wine, um, you know, we're, one, we like getting out because we were sick of being in the cave, and secondly, we seem to be making up for, for lost time. So, no, it's been busy, but really, really good fun. And you've had a busy week this week as well, haven't you, with a tutorial that you're part of? Yes, I'm a, I'm a trustee in a tutorial for the Len Evans uh, tutorial. And, you know, you, you remember, remember Len, but Len's great legacy was to set up this tutorial where they take 12 students and they put them through this extraordinary five-day program of judging, masterclasses, competitive dinners, uh, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And, um, I mean, really, they taste uh, 10 years of tasting experience in five days. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, for people who didn't know him, I mean, Len was a very famous figure, particularly in Australia. Just tell us a little bit about him, because he had a big influence on your life as well, didn't he? Yes, he he did. He he did. Um, Evans, even though he was born in Wales and um, obviously came out from, from from the UK, um, was was really the, the the father, you know, the the modern father of Australian wine. Um, a very a small person with a big voice and a huge personality, uh, a great wine judge, a great writer, you know, a true sort of Renaissance person who who yeah. came to Australia, you know, made good and had influence on really a whole generation of, of Australian wine people, everyone from Brian Crozer to me to James Halliday. Um, you know, we all adored Len. Mm. So Len came from Wales, I think, originally to be a golf pro, didn't he? Wasn't that the story? Yeah, I think he came as a golf pro and then he ended up washing glasses in somewhere. You know, it was a real, real it was absolutely, uh, you know, it's one of those great stories. Um, but he was a really exceptional taster. A taster. Um, yeah. I think at one stage he was writing 12 wine columns a month under 12 different uh, names uh, because uh, wine writing was... Uh, you know, it was a, 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 a new pursuit back there. But we all loved badly, them. Yeah, Sorry? wine writing was as badly paid then as it is now, presumably. That's why he had to do 12 a month. <laughs> sure, you're right. But we all loved him and he um, yeah. he really pushed Australian wine, particularly by judging and by making yeah. and always urged us with a stick and carrot, you know, to try and do better. Yeah. I mean, tell us about, I mean, you know, Len Evans from Wales. Where do the Hill Smiths come from? I mean, were they Brits originally? Yeah, they were. Well, he was a Smith in those days uh, before we mm. decided to double barrel it for, 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 for whatever reason I know not. 
Um, probably because it sounded more impressive, but who knows? Um, now he 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 was a brewer from Dorset. Um, I think a very pious fellow because I think they wanted him to work on Sundays. So rather than do that, he packed up his family and came to South Australia, which, of course, was one of the true and one of the only, um, you know, free, free states. Uh, mm-hmm. So he arrived, um, took off to the gold fields, and, you know, like a number of them, a uh, number of people, you know, probably didn't have a massive fine but, but found enough gold to come back and uh, buy land and plant vines. So, so he was a brewer who went into wine, basically. Exactly. exactly. Via gold. <laughs> <laughs> got to pay for it one way or the other. Well, smart move. I think at least they've got some money behind him, yeah. I mean, your, your sixth generation, Smith or Hill Smith, I mean, was it always inevitable you'd go into wine or was there a moment when you thought, well, we might do something else? I mean, I know you did a, a Cordon Bleu course at one point, didn't you? I did, I did. Um, no, I was always um, – I, I was struck because I never really liked the sort of dynastical nature of, um, you know, family companies and inherited wealth. So I kind of found it um, all, 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 of, all a bit difficult. Um, I would have been a restaurateur. I'm, I spent a fair amount of time, you know, skiing and uh, to what my children call my gap decade. Um, <laughs> wasn't quite a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point was that I absolutely loved wine, but I struggled with the idea of just, you know, working for the family company. So I did that for a few years, um, but then eventually um, there was a buyout and uh, that allowed me to, um, you know, go off and do my own thing, leaving my cousin Rob, who, you know, always wanted to run your lumber. And that's the way it, that's the way it, it, it shook out. Yeah, I mean, because when you went, you went to Roseworthy Agriculture College, which is one of the top places in Australia to study wine. You did wine production and marketing, didn't you, rather than straight enology. So the, was the idea that you always wanted to be more than a winemaker and go into the business side of it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe I just wasn't very good at organic chemistry. That's quite <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> I can't actually remember. Um, no, I think it actually came back to Len Evans again. I think Len just sat me down and said, uh, and this is someone who hadn't formally studied, and for someone who hadn't formally studied, I think he realised the value of actually going off and, and, and doing that. So so I did uh, wine production marketing, which was really just, in those days, it, 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 it covered most of the bases. It was a bit like a white belt in karate. It sort of held your pants up. Um, and, and gave you a sort of a basic understanding about what, what was going on. Um, mm. But it was also Len, actually, who encouraged me to go and do Master of Wine, you know, some years later. I mean, that was very unusual when you did it in 88. I mean, I think I was on Wine and Spirit those days. I remember you writing stuff for us, which was very good. And I thought, God, this is brave, you know, because it was in those days very much seen as a, as a British institution and a British qualification. So what made you want to do it? Was it the kind of Everest thing because it was there and you thought, I can do it? Look, I think so. Um, I think ignorance is always a great blessing in these things. And I had no idea quite what we were taking on until we actually arrived in the UK having... You know, we, we had to push quite hard. Uh, I had to go and do my, you know, my Wesset diploma. I did that, you know, they, they, they gave me dispensation to knock it off in, in four months, which I did. Um, and then I wrote finally to the institute and said, you know, will, will you let me on the course? And they said, if you come and live in England for two years, we will then let you sit the exam at the end of that period. So um, it was, um, yeah, it, it was one of those bold Ill-informed, 
um, but it kind of worked out very well. And the fact is I met lots of very good, you know, friends. I mean, many of my friends from the wine industry now, um, you know, the person I sat next to on, for, on my first day was David Gleave. Uh, who's who's a, a a mutual mate of both of ours? Yeah, yeah. And and so, what was it like going to the UK in those days in '88 as this sort of young, I mean, reasonably cosmopolitan Australian? But you then had to taste all these wines from all over the world, didn't you? Which you presume you'd not tasted before. I think it was the absolute making of me because it opened me up to you know different styles, different ideas, different concepts from everywhere, and um, it was uh, very challenging. Uh, you know, I knew a fair bit about wine, so the actual mm. making of wine and, you know, all that stuff I was pretty good on. But in terms of actually having any sort of global palate or any global understanding, um, so no, it, it was good. And uh, I've still got, you know, a whole lot of very good friends from that period and, and love going back to London whenever I can. Mm. And how's it helped your career, do you think? I mean, is, you know, is being an MW something special? I think it made a big difference to me. Um, because having come from a, a family that was well known for you know for a particular you know for Yolumba, for a, yeah. a well known Australian family, I think I always would have been in the in in the shadow in the umbrella uh, of, of that. But the MW kind of because it gave me a certain notoriety for a for a period, um, you know, it it helped a lot. Yeah. I mean, you founded Shaw and Smith with your cousin, Martin Shaw, in 89. That was the year after you passed the MW. I mean, wh- why did you choose the Adelaide Hills? Was it just because it was nearby or you already seen the potential of it as a cool climate area? Uh, look, I think having spent most of my life in the Barossa, as, as much as, um, you know, I've, I, I love Barossa Shiraz and, you know, I got bought up on those wines. Um, I think when we started to make wine, I, I wanted to be involved in something that was completely different. Uh, mm. Martin had also worked with uh, as, as Brian Crowe's understudy uh, in the mm. Adelaide Hills, and in those days, you know, Adelaide Hills is cold, and it's and 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 it's wet, and it's a complete and it snows, isn't it? In winter, sometimes. Well, you know, I think it. You know, there's a one snap, yes. that, one, <laughs> one snap that might be shown occasionally, uh, but no. It, but by Australian standards, it's it's cool, and um, it allowed us to make wines which were not necessarily the stereotype of Australian wine, which was, you know, mm. bottled sunshine and, um, mm. you know, big, ripe, soft, mm. soft, big red wines. Um, mm. I mean, I like them, but that's not what we wanted to do. So the Adelaide yeah. Hills and this whole move to cooler sites was, was quite, quite interesting for us. Had that begun in other parts of Australia at that point? I mean, the, cool, the cooler sites... Was Tassie beginning, you know, was Tumbarumba, places like that? Oh, yes, only just, though. Andrew Peary was was there, but he was really was the John the, ba- the, John the Baptist in those days. You know, he was very much on his own. Um, no, there was moves, but, you know, you've got to remember also that um, a lot of Victoria in the 1800s, which is quite cool, Great Western and, uh, yeah. you know, um, Geelong, uh, you know, there was quite a deal of early viticulture down there. So this idea that um, uh, cool climate is a, is a new thing, um, mm. you know, it, it isn't. But there's no doubt that this move to really working out that Chardonnay might grow everywhere, but mm. reality is that it needs a cool place, in my opinion anyway, to really, you know, to really produce wines of excitement. Uh, Pinot Noir, obviously, you know, you can... Plenty of people have planted Pinot Noir in the wrong place. Um, 
and continues to do so. <laughs> it was vastly trying to work out, you know, what grows well, well where, mm. and that's been mm. that was really the challenge of the last sort of thirty or forty years. I mean, you were known for Sauvignon at the start, weren't you? Well, you know, everyone, um, everyone, every winemaker can be lucky enough to have a Sauvignon or a wine which just takes off. And I know that Sauvignon is not the most cerebral, uh, you know, wine you'll ever that'll ever pass your lips. But the reality is, um, and you know, our, our our mutual friend Oz Clark loves Sauvignon because I think he just feels that it's a joyous glass of wine. And uh, you know, for us, you know, it was the right wine at the right time. Um, we were very much uh, known for it um, in the first decade, and the success of that wine allowed us to plant vineyards, build wineries and do things that we might have struggled to do otherwise. And, and what, you know, you and Martin are very different, you know, your cousins. Oh, you he's, 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 <laughs> he's, he's a little quieter than you, I'd say, and a little shyer. I mean, why are you such a good team, do you think? I mean, you, you do seem to work, rub along very well, don't you? No, no, we do. We do. I, I think that um, we have absolutely complementary um, um, skills um, Martin is very, he's a very good winemaker, his attention to detail. You know, these days people accuse people of being micromanagers and when they say that, that's, it, that, that's meant to be a bad thing. Well, being a micromanager in a chef or a winemaker is no bad thing. Yeah. So I think his attention to detail is, is, is terrific um, and I think, you know, we just work well together and, you know, I'm a pretty competitive person, but Martin and I are strangely not competitive. We, uh, you know, we, we, we work well together and I think both of us realised that we, we may have had some success had we gone out on our own, but with the two of us, particularly given if you're a small winemaker, you know, you need to know how to grow it, you need how to make it, you need how to need understand the business side of it and you actually have to have some sophistication and some understanding about how to sell it. So between the two of us, I think we always say that, you know, we're two highly flawed individuals, um, but if you put us together, you know, it's it's okay. <laughs> so yours is a bit more of the vision thing, is it? You're, you're overseeing it all. Um, oh, I think we just bounce off each other, you know. We, we, we just always have. We always have our best ideas on the second half of a bottle of red or, you know, or on a walk or halfway up a ski lift or, 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 or something. And, uh, no, it's worked really well. Although, you know, the, the last 10 years have been about trying to get, you know, the next generation coming through, and that's been a very active and very, very considered move. To get your kids in, yeah? Not the kids so much. I mean, yeah, mm. the, kids, the kids are there, but we particularly wanted, um, we particularly wanted a, a, a young, bright winemaker. So we went and mm. found Adam Wadowitz, who's, mm. you know, in my view, he's one of those once-in-a-generation winemakers, mm. highly talented, mm. great leader, very good. Mm. And David Lemire, uh, who's a master of wine, um, you know, you either find people who know about wine and can't sell or people who sell and don't know about wine. <laughs> so it's very unusual to find someone who's actually a really a wine person like a complete yeah. wine fanatic, and uh, but also loves the whole business of you know selling and traveling mm. and whatever. Yeah. So you know that that they're the next they're the they're the current CEOs, and um, you know with Martin and I hovering in the background. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you know, so you set up Sean Smith in, in what, 89? Uh, yes. Uh, then you decided to expand it to Tasmania. That was in 2011. And you bought Tollpuddle Vineyard in the Cold River Valley. Yeah. Well, how come you invested there? What made you move to Tasmania? Well, it's a, a strange thing because, you know, there have been so many opportunities to do other things. You know, we were profoundly monogamous when it came to, you know, what regions, what we did. We realised that by focusing in on Shaw and Smith, that was the thing to do. So there's all these other things that we could have done and were asked to do that we said no to. We just went to Tasmania. We, um, we, we tasted some wine, which we liked. We went to a vineyard, which had been planted by, you know, the late and great Tony Jordan. And we absolutely fell in love with this vineyard that had been planted, you know, back in the mid-'80s. And, um, you know, a month or two later we owned a vineyard and a large mortgage and no idea really how we were going to make it or what we were going to do. But it's been such an interesting and it's been such a rewarding thing to do. So did you know it was up for sale when you went there? To no, look it at wasn't it? for sale. No, it wasn't, wasn't oh. for sale. Uh, I had this awkward conversation with Tony Jordan when he rang me and said, oh, you've been to Tassie, you know, what do you think? You know, and I said, I thought it was fabulous. You know, did you see anything you liked? Yes. See anything you'd like to buy? Yes. <laughs> what is it? Your vineyard. Um, so, um, yeah, it was that sort of a, a thing. I think Tony was very happy to see it go to a good home. Um, <laughs> So, you know, and we spent 10 years improving the vineyard and, um, and it has been very successful, um, particularly actually at, at you know, at uh, International Wine Challenge. Uh, yeah. It's done extraordinarily well. You guys might obviously must have a stellar palate. <laughs> what was the connection with George Lovelace, who was one of the Tollpuddle Martyrs, also from Dorset, like the Smiths or Hillsmiths in, in, in their day? What was the connection with him? Well, I mean, the, the Tollpuddle Martyrs, so every um, every Englishman would know, um, yeah. was uh, they were, you know, the first agrarian unionists mm. and they were yeah. sent um, to Australia or Tasmania specifically yeah. as convicts. Um, for setting up this illegal union. And uh, George Lovelace, who was the leader, um, actually worked on the property, which was later to become uh, Tollpuddle Vineyard. Wow. And he was later pardoned, wasn't he? Went back they were, to, to they England. were, yeah. And even now, um, you know, they still have this festival down there. It's sort of almost become a sort of working class, which causes my friend Max Allen huge amusement <laughs> because he thinks that uh, such an elitist, uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir as Tollpuddle, it sort of cracks him up that, uh, you know, Billy Bragg and all the others are, uh, you know, uh, it's become such a symbol of the working man. So anyway. I mean, do they serve the wine at the festival or not? They should do. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't think they do. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of Billy Bragg sort of sipping Tollpuddle Chardonnay. Yes, out of, out of Riedel glasses. <laughs> When you were in London recently, you said that Australia's challenge is to plant the right things in, in the right place. And you also said that Tollpuddle was such a place. It was planted by grown-ups. You mentioned Tony Jordan, yeah? yeah? What's the secret, do you think, of getting it right from the off? Because so many people plant the wrong things in the wrong place, don't they? Well, look, I'd, I'd like to say that it was that you do all the right things. You know, you do sort of homo climate research mm -hmm. to see, you know, what, 
what climate, there were what areas in Australia rep, replicate similar climates elsewhere. You do soil studies, you do all those sorts of things. But I've just finished doing some research on Australian Chardonnay. And interestingly, the people in the late 60s, whether or not it was in Western Australia or whether it was in Victoria or whether it was in the Hunter Valley, all of them just took just a big leap of faith. They just said, you know, let's plant this. We've heard about this. It could be good. Now, then they realised that in some places it's too warm, it's too cold, it's too, it, it just doesn't work, and there's plenty of that. So I think it's mm -hmm. a sort of second-generational thing where you can start to refine down. And I think obviously Tasmania is, is cold. Mm -hmm. I don't mean cool, I mean cold. I mean you get to Hobart and if um, there's nothing between Hobart and the South Pole, it is uh, it is very very cold, and uh, but we do get a lot of sun and it's also dry. So in a way, it's absolutely perfect initially for sparkling base. Mm. So there was a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot planted down there for sparkling, and then in some of the sites, um, they're very very good for those two varieties and Riesling, of course. So I think for for us, it was a question of realizing that those varieties are particularly Pinot, is quite sensitive to sight and it seems to work very well d down there. I mean, do you get a sense of a great vineyard just by walking into it? I mean, some winemakers say that. They say, I just knew this was a great site. I mean, you know, I, I think if you know already it's a great site, it's easy to, to, to work that out. But, you know, with a new site, in a sense, did you think, hey, this is pretty special? Um, I think having seen so many crappy vineyards, I think um, suddenly you go in and you see something that, you know, it's just a beautiful even slope, you know, um, just a nice even slope. So frost was less of an issue. Um, you know, the soils were fertile enough, but they weren't too rich. Um, you know, the climate was dry and cold. And, you know, the people who had planted that vineyard had, um, you know, had got it right. So, um, yeah. you know, we, we saw very quickly it was so funny because we were in the car driving out the driving out the the door and uh, out out the gate turned right and within about 20 meters we both turned to each other and said we got to buy this <laughs> so you know and, and as i said when you know martin and you know martin you know his <laughs> yeah. due diligence and his attention to detail for him this was very out of character um, <laughs> So the fact that it's worked so well is, uh, is is a tribute to his sort of innate sense of a good place yeah. and hopefully my enthusiasm. Well, and intuition in a way, don't you think? Well, I hope so. I mean, you can always claim mm. intuition in hindsight when it works. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Listen, I want to talk to you a bit about Chardonnay. You've mentioned it. I mean, it's a comparatively young grape in Australia in some ways, isn't it? I mean, I think probably the Tyrrells were the first to, to make Chardonnay, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in, the, in the Hunter Valley? There, 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 look, there was Chardonnay that came into um, Australia in the 1830s, 40s with Busby. Uh, some of it was planted in, in Victoria where it was called um, a, a Pinot Blanc, but it actually wasn't Pinot Blanc, according to historians, it was Chardonnay. But the reality is no one knew what to do with it. Half of it was destroyed by phylloxera. You know, it pretty much disappeared. So Tyrrell in 71 um, released the first VAT 47, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And, um, you know, it went from being this um, variety which they sort of made like Riesling uh, for a few years uh, without realising 
And then they moved pretty quickly to oak maturation and to malolactic and to other to other things. So, mm. uh, and by that stage, the same thing was happening in Margaret River, um, mm. you know, particularly with the Cullens and with Lewin, and uh, also um, in uh, you know Victoria as well uh, with Yeringberg and some of some of those producers. So, it was really a sort of '60s '70s thing. Then we went through the '80s, where well. They were all very 80s, what can I say? The Rosemount, the Rosemount years, we could say, yeah? The classic Roxburgh Chardonnay, mm. which was, you know, golden, heavy, ripe, mm. full of flavour, not very sophisticated, not very refined, but full of flavour and uh, found great success in the UK um, because, you know, it was a glass full of, you know, full of flavour. But um, I suppose because by that stage we were all starting to drink more Burgundy and we were starting to see that, you know, Chardonnay could be far more refined. And what has really started is, particularly over the last 30 to 40 years, has been this growing in cool places, older vines, less obvious oak, just making these very, very beautiful, savoury, linear, acid-driven um, modern Australian wine, uh, Chardonnays, which I think are, are crackingly good. No, they're brilliant. I mean, quantum shift in the last, what, 15 years, would you say, in quality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if you, um, and we did um, at the Land Evans tutorial, we did a, a lineup of, well, they tasted 30 Chardonnays from around the world to start with, but then I did a masterclass on the evolution of Australian Chardonnay. Mm, interesting. And we had, yeah. you know, 10 or 11 different producers there, mm. and they just looked terrific and mm. because i've been around for a while and i've seen the whole evolution i have to say i was extremely proud of of, of where we've evolved to yeah interesting tell us a little bit about pinot because you make pinot in the adelaide hills as well as in tasmania at Tollpuddle. How, how does your approach differ in the two places because maybe you say that there's no one size fits all approach with pinot no, well, Pinot, I mean, everyone's, everyone says Pinot's difficult to make. Everyone says Pinot's difficult to grow. It's, it's the most sensitive. Uh, and all of that is true. That, that, I mean, that is our experience. So when people first uh, started uh, growing uh, Pinot in, in, in Australia, once again, wrong sites, wrong places, people not really understanding what they were doing. Um, but now, um, you know, the Pinots are very good. But it's very interesting, just as in Burgundy, you can have very fine, very ethereal, very delicate uh, pinot, and then you can also have, you know, thing, you know, things like pomar that are, you know, four square and quite, mm. you know, quite blocky. So um, the same thing, uh, same thing in Australia. So with our Adelaide Hills um, uh, Shaw and Smith pinots, we find that they're quite delicate, they're quite ethereal, they're quite perfumed, um, they're really quite light on their feet, and they needed to be protected. Uh, during their their um, you know they need to be protected during fermentation and um, you know and we we tend not to filter them and we we're really very careful to try and look after that delicacy. Whereas Tasmania, because it's cold and dry, um, they get quite a long hang time. So we get quite powerful pinot from Tasmania. Um, the colours are quite strong. Uh, the aromatics are quite strong. So if anything. You know, Tasmanian pinots have got to be tamed, whereas um, uh, Adelaide Hills pinots have got to be sort of you know cared for. Yeah, interesting. Uh, big generali big generalisation, but yeah, uh, yeah, sure. 
I mean, your, your latest venture is something called MMAD, right? Which is the, the first names, I think, of all of the, the four of you, the four partners. And you release what, first wines this year? Just tell us, it's Blewett Springs, isn't it? And what are you making there? Yeah, is Blewett it- Springs. Yeah, Blewett Springs, which is in McLaren Vale. Um, Blewett Springs is the highest part of McLaren Vale. It's noted for these sort of, you know, iron-rich, sandy soils, particularly good for old vine Grenache, um, mm. probably the most exciting old vine Grenache in the country. Um, no, we, we said to David uh, Lemire, who's the D, and uh, Adam, who's the A, uh, and Martin and I, uh, we said, look, you know, if you guys can find a project that really excites you mm-hmm. and you can convince us that it's exciting, um, why don't we do it together? So we've actually gone into business with Adam and David, hence double M-A-D, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we bought this this 20-hectare vineyard. I think the um, Shiraz was planted in 1939, um, the Grenache in 41, and the Shannon, which is kind of almost the, the, almost the, the unexpected, uh, was planted Very. in 64. Yeah. So um, we've released three wines. Um, you know, so far so good. Uh, everyone seems to be... I mean, the Shannon is the re- is the is the excitement one because mm-hmm. you know I'd forgotten that the younger generation of sommeliers, younger generation of winemakers, are completely besotted by Shannon Blanc, mm-hmm. whether or not it be South African or whether it be from the Loire. So um, they're really excited by it, and there's no doubt that uh, Grenache, which I used to really dislike. You know, if I had to judge Australian Grenache, I'd say no, no. That was a short straw, was it? Have you got the, the Grenache glass? Because, you know, too porty, too big, you know, too yeah. monodimensional and big. Mm. And mm. then, you know, Yangara came along mm. and Steve Pannell and uh, they suddenly started to make old vine Grenache like Pinot Noir. So yeah. you suddenly get these brightly coloured but not heavily coloured, uh, very, very perfumed, um, and they're really very beautiful wines. So, you know, the, the sort of new Grenache using old vines is, is genuinely exciting. And I suppose you could say that, I mean, maybe Riesling would have a case, but Australia's signature white variety would probably be Chardonnay now, and its signature red would be Syrah stroke Shiraz, right? I just wonder whether you think there are other varieties that have got potential in Australia. Which are they? Look, I think you're right. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> It's a bit like going into the gelati shop, and you know there's more than you know there's more more than four, four flavors on offering. Uh, and Australia does tend to have a fairly tight footprint of mm. you know Semillon, Riesling, Chardonnay, mm. um, you know Shiraz, Cabernet, Pinot, Grenache, mm. you know, and that's sort of where you start to run at, run out. Um, mm. People are having uh, once again back to Steve Panel. He's having a lot of success with things like Tariga. Um, and you can see why, um, you know, good extract, higher acidity, grows well in a, it grows well in a warmish climate. Um, so I think that has a lot of potential. People are getting excited about Nebbiolo, but I'm not, you know, I think um, we've, there's some quite reasonable nebs that are being produced, but it takes a while. You know, the early Pinots from Australia were pretty ordinary. Um, you know, it takes you a good 10, 15 years to, to refine it. But I think more Mediterranean varieties, for want of a, a, a different word, um, you know, Spain, Italy. Um, and I think it's kind of great because consumers are now so comfortable 
that instead of just drinking that variety that they feel comfortable with, now they're happy travellers. They are happy travellers. They are very keen to try different things from different places. So it means that particularly a lot of the smaller makers who are, you know, toying with, I hate the word, alter- alternative varieties, you know, but you, you, you know what I mean. Uh, I do, people, yeah. People are having a lot of fun with, with these and, like all of these things, you know, they, they become a 10, 15, 20-year-old experiment. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about show judging because you, you used to do a lot of that. You still do a fair bit, maybe not quite as much as you did. And, you know, you won the Bollinger Medal uh, which for the Master of Wine exam, I think, uh, for the best taster. Just whether you think tasting ability is innate or is it something people can learn to do? I think you can learn to do it. I think um, if you are um, driven enough you have the discipline to learn, you've got the discipline. It depends what tasting, if it's like a master of wine thing, which is about how do you identify something, almost like a trained sniffer dog, um, that, that's, a, that's an interesting party trick and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to understand the classic wines of the world and so I think being able to recognise, you know, classic or emerging thing, that's one thing. But I think to be able to evaluate quality which is a completely different exercise, and uh, mm. that's really what show judging is about. It's trying to mm. recognise quality. And I think mm. if you do your apprenticeship, you taste with good people, you park your ego, um, mm. and, you know, I think you can become a competent taster. Mm. I think the best tasters I've come across in my life, the great tasters, I mean, maybe they were born with the special gift, but I, I, I think people can become very competent tasters if they're prepared to work hard enough. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about one of the other things you do, which is you're a consultant to Singapore Airlines. I just wonder, I mean, I, I get the pleasure of judging sellers in the sky. So I get to see all these wines that are coming in from, you know, business class and, and first class and not economy, thank God, especially <laughs> these days. And it strikes me sometimes that, that, that airlines are buying wines they think the customers will like um, because they're prestigious in some cases without necessarily buying the wines that work best in the air because it's a very different environment. Which wines do you think were best in the air? Um, well, I think the, the wines that are best in the air generally, uh, conventional wisdom are, is that the wines taste different at altitude, but the mm. only reason they taste, taste different at altitude has got nothing to do with the altitude. It's got to do with the fact that it's so dry up there mm. that mm. You, you actually don't smell and taste as well because of the, mm. the, the, the dry cabin. Um, so the conventional wisdom is things that have more fruit, more drive, more brightness, more, you know, do, do work very, up, uh, very well up there. And if that was the case, traditional old Chianti would be the worst wine that you could serve in the air. I remember <laughs> Barolo. Right. Well, even yes, I remember buying a, a Nipazana for Singapore Airlines some years ago and it was, a, you know, it was a bit of a beast and uh, we thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. And it was a huge success. People loved it. So, you know, um, I don't know quite the way to go. I think there is a huge expectation when you travel first class. Um, you know, for Singapore Airlines, it's always prestige cuvee, whether it be, you know, Comte de Champagne or whether it be Dom or whether it be Krug or, you know, so, and I think that just is the expectation of how much the ticket costs. Um, we serve a lot of second growth Bordeaux. Um, which particularly in Asia has been important, 
Now, whether or not it's as important now is another question because a lot of that part of the world now is uh, drinking your and my Burgundy, uh, mm. which should not be allowed. Um, so, it's, uh, so, you know, I, we're finding that, um, you know, Pinot. So for me, I like to have a balance. I like to have some really good examples of traditional European wine styles, which I'm, I'm delighted. And I love to counterpoint that with something from New Zealand or Australia or the US or, you know, Argentina or whatever. So I think it should be like a tiny little mini wine list, uh, yeah. you know, with, the air. Of, yeah. of different flavors. Yeah, yeah. If nothing else, you're covering your bases, if nothing else. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, you describe yourself sometimes as a robust Australian wine advocate. I just wonder what sort of shape you think the industry's in right now. It's had its ups and downs, obviously, and, and how you see it developing over the next 20 years, particularly with things like climate change. Yes, you know, the, the thing is that when you talk about the industry, it's a bit like saying you're know, talking about France, you know. It's a, mm. You can't look at it that way. You have to look at it, mm. you know, by, by sections. But when we look at Australia, we tend to talk about the industry. And there's no doubt that um, you know, with all the, all the problems and the trade wars we've had with China and, you know, that a lot of people who were selling a lot of red wine into China have been uh, hurt by uh, the, the loss of that market. Although, interestingly, they do look like they make, they're making it up elsewhere. So if you look at that, and then that in turn funds research, it funds the activities of Wine Australia. So if you looked at all that, you'd probably go, well, you know, it's, we need more money, we need more promotion, you know, maybe we're not looking that good. Mm. But if you actually look at the diversity of producers, the, the contrast in regions, I don't think Australia has ever been making more exciting wine than it is now. The question is, how do we translate that message, um, you know, well to being something other than just, you know, a good value wine in a supermarket? Mm. You know, I think we... Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that's the point. Do consumers still think sunshine in a glass? Um, Some consumers, I'd say, mass market consumers. Well, you and I would say that, but I think anyone yeah. who's, you know, the right side of 40 is um, can't even remember sunshine in the glass. I think they're just <laughs> saying, you know, who's making like who's making cool wine, who's making interesting yeah. wine, who's got a good story to tell. You know, these yeah. wines are exciting. So I think yeah. sometimes, um, you know, I go back to, to my old mentor, um, Len Evans, and Len's mm. view was you just need to show the best wines you produce to as mm. many people as you can, and it is missionary work. So I, I think, I like you know, to me, that's absolutely what it comes down to. <laughs> missionary work. I like that. I think it's a great point on which to end. And missionary work is definitely what you've done, particularly in these cooler climate areas, but also now Blue It Springs. Fantastic. With Chenin Blanc. I can't wait to taste that. Thanks, Tim. Good to see you. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Isn't Michael a great talker? Such an entertaining man. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Marcelo Papa from Conchitoro in Chile. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.